Tonight's reading from the scripture is from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 11 through 40. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were supposed to, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. 
And Paul, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray together. Oh God, we ask that you might open the eyes of our hearts, that we might know the hope to which you've called us. What are the riches of being part of your people in the immeasurable power for those that believe? We trust you for this work as you've been working the entire service. And we give you thanks in advance. In Christ's name, amen. So we have been spending a lot of time studying the birth of the church, the Christian church. And uh, we wouldn't say the birth of God's people because God was alive with the people of Israel. But we see something special with the formation of the church. And that is being a member in it, inclusion isn't, inclusion in it, isn't uh, determined by ethnicity or nationality or adherence to tradition or living under the law, but rather it's by experiencing the power of the gospel and responding in faith. And by gospel, I mean the power of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, who he is and what he has done, that gospel and its power. And the second thing we come to see as we're studying this book is that power, that power is not limited to any one kind of person or circumstance. It's not limited to a particular socioeconomic class, gender, education, nationality. It's not limited to people that seem like they're really free and independent and those that feel like they're in bondage. It's not limited to those who appear very successful and those that would appear to be failures. There is no sort of person or circumstance that can't be touched by the power of the gospel. And we see that in this passage, particularly with three people, Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer. The gospel working on them. The great uh, late theologian John Stott said this, though racially, socially, and psychologically they were worlds apart, all three were changed by the same gospel and were welcomed into the same church. And what I want to do is just look at different sides of that gospel. Three things, the enlightening power of the gospel, the emancipating power of the gospel, and the emboldening power of the gospel. How those three things are at work, particularly in these three stories. And why? Because 
I know that you need one of those this evening. I know you do. I know I do. And I would ask you to dare to believe that the God of heaven and earth, through his son who came to earth, has power just like he did then to change you, to transform you this evening, this week. So let's look at these three things together. So first of all, the enlightening power of the gospel. And this story involves um, a non-Jewish woman who is an upstanding member of her community, a wealthy business owner, a successful woman named Lydia. And she is a dealer in dyed cloths. That's why Luke bothers to tell us that she's from Thyatira, because that was the center of these dyed cloths. Actually, have ancient inscriptions that testify to that. And from the fact that she owns a big enough home to invite Paul and Silas into the home is indication of her success, of her wealth. And because the imperial family, the royal family, had a corner on the dyed, especially dyed purple cloth market during that time, she may have been part of the royal family, some extension. But most significantly, she's described as a worshiper of the God of Israel. And Luke describes her in virtually the same way he does Cornelius in chapter 10, who we met, the first significant Gentile convert. He mentions her name, her profession, her province, and her religious status. And as a worshiper of the God of Israel would mean she would attend synagogue or these prayer meetings. She adhered to the scripture she heard. She might even participate in the prayers, and she would be living, seeking to live under the laws of Israel, or to some degree, value those laws. And yet, with all of that, she's missing something. She's missing something. She doesn't know personally the Lord of Israel. She doesn't know him And it uh, reminds us of something that's important to remember, that uh, successful, morally good, and even spiritually inclined people need to be saved. They need to be enlightened with the power of God's grace. And that is something that, um, you know, we have many such people in our city. This room is filled with folks like that. We have many people in our city that are gifted, They're sincere, they pay it forward, they're compassionate, they care about the city. Yet the Lord wants more from you and I. You know, one of the most chilling uh, passages for me in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' big sermon, is when he says, on the last day, some will say to me, but Lord, didn't we speak in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? And he will look and say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Because that's what God has always wanted. He's always wanted to know us. The problem isn't on his end. The problem has to do with us. So even though Lydia is faithful and moral, she's missing something. And you can see it afterward because as she hears the power of the gospel and responds, she immediately bears fruit of it. Right? 
She, she begins sharing her faith, talking about Jesus with her family. She begins to, to practice a new level of hospitality. She invites, says, make your ministry center my home. And she becomes kingdom-centered. This is a mark of the power of the gospel. Our lives become oriented, not so much about like what's swirling out here, or our career, or our problems, or even our health. It, it becomes, everything is lit up with this view of the kingdom of Jesus. Because that's a sign of the power of the gospel. But the second thing we see is this, that God alone can and must do this work. The God alone can and must do this work. It says that the Lord opened her heart. He opened her heart. And again, it gets, it, it, it's, a, it's a challenge to modern spirituality because we tend to, in America, operate with a do-it-yourself spirituality. If I choose it and I pick it and I work at it, if I do those things, I'll succeed in it. In fact, there's not a whole lot of dependency on God. Maybe a little bit of enlightenment, but most of it is on me. I thought what Will said at the beginning of the service was so helpful. Right, This idea that you're invited into a place where we can stop that, get off the performance treadmill, and see what God can do. See what the power of God can do for you. And whether it's somebody's initial conversion or ongoing spiritual renewal, God must be the one that opens the heart. And the reason why we forget about that is because of the presence of something called sin. The Bible tells us that sin dulls us to God. It hardens us to God. It creates a false sense of self-sufficiency until you're on your deathbed. Sin makes us believe that I'm not dependent on God to move. But the gospel reminds us in the most winsome and gentle way that we are powerless to know God. We need him to move. We forfeited that when we chose a life of independence. We are humble and weak. We need the Lord to open our eyes and heart. And I have heard this in different ways all throughout my ministry. It might be someone's conversion into the Christian faith, or it might be someone saying something like this. I, I feel like I've come to understand grace for the first time. I believe that Jesus has become like personal to me. I've come to believe that God is really my father, and he takes care of me. What happened? God opened the eyes of their heart. He moved. Meg and I uh, have had a recent illustration of this with our own daughter, our second daughter, Isabel. And I asked her for permission to share this. Uh, she was writing an application for something um, and uh, what she shared, I felt like, you know, that sort of illustrates what we're talking about here. Can I share that? She said, yes, share it. So I'm going to read it to you. I was raised in a Christian home with my dad as a PCA pastor. That's me. <laughs> I had faith from a young age and lived in a rich faith community. That's you. That reinforced my beliefs. My relationship with God changed, changed as I got sicker and struggled with both mental and physical health issues. 
I was not as able to participate in my church community. My daily life was focused purely on survival. Throughout all of this time, though, prayer was the one constant thing. I started out my freshman year with a baseline of faith, but a spiritual life that had become duller as I progressively got sicker. In the winter of 2020, my mental health hit an all-time low, and suddenly the prayer tap turned off. It was terrifying and hopeless because I knew the tap was never turned on because of anything I did. It was purely because God wanted it on. So I knew I was at the mercy of God to choose to turn it back on. Thankfully, he did turn it back on at the beginning of the spring semester. Chapels have always been a consistent highlight for me during my time here. I don't see how she could be my daughter, personally, with that, with that statement. But anyway, that's, a, that's far more uh, spiritual than I have ever been. Uh, because of my health issues, I was not able to attend most of the chapels last spring. This was really discouraging for me, and I had to write over 20 chapel summaries over the summer. Of course, I pushed this off until literally the last three days. I don't really know how to explain what this experience was like. This is going through those chapels in the three days. Then that it was like a conversion experience for me. Even though I was already a Christian, it felt like I was being offered a chance to finally take ownership of my unique and personal faith. God used every single one of those chapels to speak directly to something I was feeling or struggling with. I felt truly reconnected with God for the first time in years. I offer that to you because um, this is the way God works, right? In our hearts, he opens, he, he works upon our hearts. But that might lead to a question because he opened Lydia's heart. And that is this. So I, I just passive, I just kind of sit there. And I would say no. One of the things you notice about Lydia is that she made herself available to God to work in the way that God works, right? I mean, I guess it would seem far from our mind that God could use like chapel sermons to actually revive someone's life, but he can. Even these sermons. Or Lydia sitting there. It says that God opened her heart to pay attention intently, and that is half the problem, isn't it? Sometimes I think our biggest problem is we just have such trouble stopping and paying attention to God. Just like making ourselves available for him to speak to us so he can break in with the power of the gospel and do something mighty. So I want to encourage you, keep coming, like I said to the kids. Keep making yourself available for him to do this work in your life. Because he does it. The emancipating power. Let's move on to the slave girl. Who is spiritually and literally oppressed. Uh, first, she's possessed by an evil spirit. And a uh, couple things here, right? First of all, for scientific and medically minded people, modern people, again, this is a challenge to us. Right, because we tend to, I, I'm not even convinced, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say that. Um, but I, I want to point out to you that what's interesting about this is Luke, who is an eyewitness and writer of this account, his vocation, some of you know this, was what? He's a doctor, he was a physician. 
So he's a guy that spends a lot of his time like focusing on the body. Even if he's an ancient doctor, he was a physician. You know, it's not as neat as clean, right? Neat and clean. is we, we just swing all the time in history, right? We never run to the middle of the boat. We're here, and then we run over here. I'm not sure how well we can discern that sort of spiritual influence in this day and age. We need to pray for eyes to see. Jesus would heal people of diseases and demons. Not as divided. Second thing I need to say is... Uh, Christians cannot be possessed in the way that this woman was possessed. Because when someone comes to know Jesus, God moves in, and he doesn't give up that land. The Father, Son, and the Spirit move in. Now, Christians can be oppressed, meaning, you know, you feel like you're really getting hit with the accusation of the enemy, because that's what he does. It may, you're going through trial and suffering. I mean, things can get tough. In this world, you'll have trouble. But this is a distinct thing happening with this girl. We don't really know why. It literally says in the Greek she had the spirit of a python. She's a pythoness. This was a person who was believed to be possessed by the, by the spirit python that guarded the temple of Apollo in the Delphic Oracle. You Harry Potter fans, maybe think of it like a basilisk or something like that. The Greeks would, would uh, refer to them as ventriloquists because uh, they would have these utterances that would seem to come out of nowhere with different sorts of voices. And they would be, in some ways, prophetic utterances, predictions. And folks would seek them out because they'd want to know about their own future and maybe bring some harm to someone else or bring some protection to themselves. Evidently, this young girl was very accurate because we're told she brought a great prophet that gets to the second Oppression she faces, and that is probably the worst part of it. Human greed, right? Human trafficking, sex trafficking, what's behind it ultimately? Greed. Driven by money. Instead of having pity on her, they use her. Luke highlights she's not just a slave, but he highlights she's owned. This young girl is owned. She's entirely passive in her circumstances. She needs someone more powerful than herself, an emancipator, to come in and set her free. In the same way that someone, someone in a suicidal despair, someone in a great state of addiction, powerless, needing someone to come in and set them free, and Jesus uses Paul. Now, this pass, part of the passage has always seemed kind of funny to me. It says Paul was annoyed, right? And it, it, you think, well, is that the best, like, motive? Like, you know, he's annoyed and get out of here. Well, I think we have to understand. It says he's annoyed at the spirit, not at her. And the second thing, we say, why three days? Well, these guys weren't like the Avengers where they just pulled out the power whenever they wanted. I mean, they submitted to the Lord. Obviously, the Lord hadn't planned on healing her yet. Led by God's spirit and said, now I want you to heal her. And it's a sign of Paul's compassion because you know he had to know, if I heal this woman, a lot of trouble is going to come to me and Silas. That's exactly what happened, right? He's falsely accused by these owners. Did you hear the spin they put on it? It had nothing to do about losing their profit. 
They're assaulting the values of Rome because Philippi was a real proud place about Roman history. So they wisely exploit things. So Paul and Silas get thrown in. We're told that they're beaten with many blows. I mean, they are beaten badly. Badly. Wounds to be healed. The Lord's desire is for Paul to suffer so this girl can be set free. The emancipating free power of the gospel. I was thinking about, as we're in Black Heritage Month, uh, Juneteenth, Emancipation Day, right? And, uh, you know, I'm sure you all know the history, but if that day happened two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Like the slaves in Texas were not yet liberated. So that's why we find that day to be significant. But while it became a national holiday in 2021, actually right after the occasion, African Americans would gather in their families and have an Emancipation Day celebration. And they would pray and recognize the Lord as the great emancipator. You know, the African American church is always connected with Israel and that freedom from bondage. That he was able to come in and actually be, begin to work freedom, right? A freedom that's still working itself out. They understood Jesus as the Messiah, the great one that breaks bonds. So this is where we get into some tough areas, right? Because we get into those areas where we really feel powerless, where we have to keep believing in a big Jesus who can do powerful things. Is the gospel powerful? How do we read these testimonies and not hope that the Lord can break down walls? We must. He does. Again, I've had too many testimonies in my ministry to see that. But there's one area particularly that I want to focus on. Even though he might free us from habitual sin or even someone from the influence and evil spirit. When Jesus talks about freedom and Paul talks about freedom mostly, they're talking about gospel freedom. When Jesus says the truth will set you free, he's not just making a random statement. He's talking to the religious leaders who live enslaved to their traditions. And in the book of Galatians, Paul says it's for freedom in Christ that Christ has set you free. He's talking about those that live in that constant slavery and bondage to performance. Right? The bondage we feel to anxiety and worry. And as, again, Will mentioned, am I saying the right thing? Do I look right? Do I sound okay? Am I measuring up? Does God accept me? Do his feelings just change day to day like mine? When we understand what Jesus has accomplished, permanent favor for you and I. Permanent righteousness for you and I. I may please or displease God at times, but I never go in and out of his love and favor. I live in that universe. You do too. Live under that sunshine. Live under the banner of that love. And isn't that when you feel most free? Isn't that when you feel most emancipated? And you can actually focus on other people, right? We can actually stop and pay attention. But lastly, emboldening power. And this gets us to the jailer. The jailer is an illustration of someone who hits crisis in trouble and doesn't have what it takes to get through it, right? 
The earthquake hits. He despairs. There's no way he can conceive hope from this circumstance. And so he's going to take his own life. His confidence is circumstantially based. This earthquake has happened. These guys are going to take off. There's no hope. But he has seen something. He has seen two guys whose hope is astoundingly not circumstantially based. Right? They're beaten. They're in stocks. The wounds are rubbing against the stocks. They're in incredible pain. They're in the maximum security. I'm sure that wasn't pretty. It's completely dark. They can't sleep. Right? Insomnia. Exhausted. And there the jailer's in the other room, and he hears, you know, uh, uh, so he, you know, he begins to hear some singing. Right? Words of a hymn, maybe for us, something we just sang, you know. God, you are my God. You know, he just hears this light, this flickering light. That's the first thing. He's like, how do these guys have hope in this circumstance? I don't get that. And then, when things really go crazy, instead of, you know, Paul and Silas going, aha, we knew God would do this. You're dead. You had it coming. They hold the prisoners back to save his life so they can save his soul, so they can share the gospel. This man gets a vision for a power and a hope that's beyond whatever crisis, trouble, circumstance. You know, it made me think, close out with this, um, you know, Bonhoeffer's, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was um, martyred under the Nazi regime, pastor in Germany. Uh, you know, his letters and papers from prison, do you know how they made it out? They were smuggled out by the prison guards. Because, he, in fact, a few of them were willing to help him escape. God had, like, moved in a way. And uh, when he was executed, there's an account from an, a Nazi doctor. And some of you may have heard this before. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was deeply moved by the way that this lovable man prayed so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Even there, right? There's some, the, the emboldening power of God at work. So I, I want to ask you, where do you need that power right now in your life? Um, we need to gather around each other and pray. We need to pray that God makes the gospel real to us. The enlightening power, the emancipating power, the emboldening power. Maybe for you it's doubts and questions, because Lydia probably was sitting there trying to work things out, right? I, I, maybe it's those things need answer for you. God, will you show me the light so I can move out of just feeling like I can't be confident in you? Or maybe it's freedom you need. You need God to set you free by his power and his spirit in the gospel. Some vice, some sin, some struggle you have.
Or maybe it's just, I would love to be not living day to day with every new crisis as if I can't live with confidence. He can do this. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would demonstrate it in our community, as you have been. But we, we want more wine. We want new wine. We're asking that you would move in ways in our community whereby you could only take the glory. It would only be explainable by your work. So many would be drawn to you, and you would get the fame you deserve, Jesus. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.